Thank you for joining us at Essential Ethics, your gateway to ethical discussion and education about complex bioethical issues that arise when caring for sick children. Essential Ethics is made possible by funds raised through the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. We want you to be inspired by the stories of courage of our patients and parents and the staff who care for sick children and be inspired by the clear thinking of the team at the Children's Bioethics Centre when things get tricky. Welcome to our series of classic conundrums from the team at Essential Ethics. Essential Ethics is brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre of the Royal Children's Hospital. I'm your host, John Massey. Today's case caused many sleepless nights for a number of us here at the hospital. Today we're talking about a small boy with a congenital leg abnormality whose mother asked the orthopaedic surgeon to amputate the leg. This was quite a confronting time and it raised a great deal of ethical questions for the surgeon and for the team and for the hospital. Today we're joined by the orthopaedic surgeon, Dr Chris Harris from the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome to Essential Ethics, Chris. Thank you, John. And to help us reflect on the ethical issues, we're joined again by Professor Lynn Gillam, the Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Service and who's also from the University of Melbourne. Welcome to Essential Ethics, Lynn. Thanks, John. Chris, I might have put my own overlay on that, but how did you feel when the mother of this child said, do an amputation? It was the reverse situation that we normally encounter, John. Um, fibula hemimelia is a condition children are born with an abnormal limb. It hasn't formed properly in the womb. And uh, whilst it gets its name fibula hemimelia because one of the most obvious features on x-ray is the abnormality of the fibula, it really is about two things. It's about the leg being short and the foot and ankle being abnormal. And in the past, uh, length was a challenge to orthopaedic surgeons, but is not such a big challenge anymore. Um, and so in fibula hemimelia, whilst the leg is short and the treatment for it typically involves lengthening, the key thing before you do any of that is to ask a question, is the foot and ankle going to be worth having? Is it going to work as a foot and ankle? Or is the deformity or the, the deficiency, the fact you might not have the right shaped heel or so many toes or part of the foot not there, is it ever going to work as a foot and ankle? And so as orthopaedic surgeons, when we meet these children, one of our first assessments is, do we think the child is better without their foot and ankle? In which case we do an amputation to remove it and prosthetic fitting, or are they better with it? Where we'd go down a line of reconstruction, so correcting deformity, lengthening, and that's quite a big journey. It's it's number of operations. It's not an easy journey. And each, each surgeon will have in their mind a line drawn in that analog scale between the terrible foot that everyone would agree should go and the perfect foot and ankle that no one would ever suggest amputation. Somewhere between those two, there is a line. And every surgeon's got a slightly different place for that line. Um, and that is one of the challenges um, for us because we're aware that we don't all completely agree. But generally speaking, we would be united in some of our decisions. And for, for me, this was a foot to keep. So 
the request to uh, take it away and do prosthetic fitting was contrary to what I would have gone with my choice. Is that a simple decision in your mind at that stage? Uh, this is, I'll keep the leg, we'll embark on the reconstruction. Yeah. I, I, the, one of the challenges for us as surgeons is how much do we guide the family so is that foot, for example, in the child where it's so fantastic, do we ever mention that part of the management of fibula hemimelia involves making that decision? Well, the answer is probably no. But the foot that we think is really never going to work well as a foot that we're thinking right from the beginning, probably the child would be better without this foot and with a prosthesis. We're going to sow the seed of this is this is our dilemma, this is what we think, and maybe this foot is not good. And then as we get to know the family, we'll explore some of that and l try and lead them, I suppose, down this pathway that we feel is the right treatment. And our biggest challenge is normally when we've got a child with a, a foot and ankle that are, that are not great and we feel they should have an amputation, our biggest challenge is when the family say, no, we don't really want an amputation. And then we tend to... We, we, we don't have too much trouble then once the family have made that strong decision of saying, OK, we'll go down the reconstructive route. So as surgeons, we're very used to parents not necessarily agreeing with us, but in one direction. Whereas in this particular case, it was the opposite way around, that we'd taken the parents down the route of reconstruction and they were saying, actually, we want an amputation. And that was a first for, for me and it really challenged a lot um, about how I make decisions and, and how, what values I have, and that, that, at that stage, that's where we approach Lynn. Just, to, just to fill us in at the time, though, Chris, uh, had the family embarked on some casting or bracing in, yeah. in the initial stages? Yeah, this case was interesting because their initial um, journey was not really how we would normally do things. So normally with fibula hemimelia, the patients would come to myself or my colleague who we do the same work and we would then see the patient and take them down that journey. But in this particular case, the child had come to a different team and they treated the foot like we would treat a club foot, a congenital talipes equinovarus with casting. And as part of that casting, the patient had been sent um, for making an AFO, a plastic splint. And it happened that the orthotist who was making that splint was also a prosthetist, had got it, had got uh, this understanding that we had sent them along to, to talk about whether an amputation. So really the amputation side came about not from us, but it came through another route. And in fairness to the, to the orthotist, to the prosthetist, their challenge is that they see these children so good, so functional with an amputation and a prosthesis that to them, they look at it and say, well, why would you reconstruct, go down this big complex journey when these patients can be so good? Whereas we look at it the other way around. Some people would say, why would you amputate when you can save the foot? So are you a hero for saving the foot or are you the hero because you make a cold, hard decision to remove the foot and fit a prosthesis? Well, we'll assign herohood towards the end of the podcast, <laughs> Chris. So... My understanding was that it was what, around 15 or 18 months that the family were pushing for... Yeah, before the then. But we, in a sense, we have the, 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 the clock ticking for us is not too bad until the child is at walking age. And even with these foot deformities, they can still walk. But we like to, if we're going to do an amputation, we like to do it under the age of two, roughly, because we don't want the child to remember any of it. 
So the t- clock's ticking. Two's your cutoff yeah. for that idea of the child integrating their leg into themselves and personality and having a, some prostheses to be functional. What, what does the other side look like, though, in terms of the reconstruction? Because that's not a single event, is it? No. So I mentioned earlier that there's a scale of, you know, the normal foot versus the, the terrible. And so like in so much as- so many aspects of medicine, we classify things and we would have this certain type of fibula hemimelia and each of those types would have a particular treatment pathway. And it really depends initially on what is the position of the foot and ankle. So that would be if we were to do surgery for that, that would be um, some form of operation to correct the position of the foot and ankle. And typically, but not always, it would involve um, a frame, an Elizaroff frame, a circular frame around the leg. And then having got all that good, you would be looking at doing lengthening. And typically that is also with an Elizaroff frame. And when you do lengthening, the child is going to be in the frame for months, three, four months or so. And so it's a, it's a big journey for the family. And so that frame, I think, for people who aren't familiar, sits outside the yes. leg with spikes essentially yeah, going wires that, into the leg. Yeah, wires that skewer through the, the soft tissues into the bone to hold it. It looks rather un, unpleasant. And how many times, uh, uh, you know, because a kid's going to grow, so mm. how many times are they going to have this sort of surgery before you, you can stop and say, well, your leg's good enough? Yeah, it depends, John, on um, the severity of the shortness. So some that in, in, in the simplest um, uh, sort of types of fibula hemimelia where you're going to do a lengthening, they may only have one done. And that may come at any age and like five, six onwards. Um, I'm doing, I'm, I've got a case to do soon on a refugee that's never had treatment and they're now 18 years of age and they've walked around with a short leg. Um, so some children, one operation, but for others with the more difficult types, three, four operations and all that goes along with that. Not just an operation where you do it and you wake up and it's all done, but an operation where the treatment is ongoing for weeks or months with a frame or some sort of splintage or some device like that. So it looks like, Chris, clinically we're, we're weighing up uh, hopefully a single surgery for a good amputation yeah. and perhaps multiple prosthetic fittings over the years as the child grows. Definitely multiple prostheses. Versus potentially multiple operations going through into the teens for yeah. uh, this baby. Yeah. And the other thing and that the parents made the point in this case, and they were very clear about this, is that despite doing all that, never a normal foot and ankle. So any of the surgery still doesn't give the child five toes, still only got three toes. And you could argue that there is a cosmetic side to that. There's an acceptability side. So in society, what is seen as more acceptable, the child with the prosthetic leg or the child with two or three toes? And so the parents also came from that perspective. Do you think the parents had then, having the seed sown by the prosthetist, then looked up and, and done their research and seen some famous examples of yeah, people they, with this they, condition? They, to their credit, they'd done a lot of research. And our challenge was never particularly with the parents. They, they had done all the right things. It was with that reverse of our normal situation. We normally find our situa- ourselves in the opposite situation where we're recommending amputation. The parents want us to keep the leg and we seem comfortable with that for some reason. But the opposite one, I was really uncomfortable with. So just before we switch to Lynn then, it's sounding like that these are together, intelligent, thoughtful, and you know, well-read and knowledgeable 
in terms of their capacity to make this request or make this decision. Would that that yes, a, a fair assessment? So, Lynn, this is a is a conundrum uh, because I think people feel very strongly in lots of directions. One perhaps about function, but other people about we do everything we can to to save a leg, and that's what we as doctors, but I think people in the community might think as well. So how did you approach this or how do you feel about this? So yes, it is a conundrum in many ways, John, and there are strong views. So I think there is a strong instinctive view, not just as Chris was describing for surgeons, but for everybody to think amputation is a terrible thing and that's the thing most to be avoided. So it's surprising when parents or anybody would in fact want an amputation if it would were to be avoidable. Um, then the, I think there's another strong feeling around the extent to which it should be the parents say. So one possible view is that these parents are bringing up this child and they need to be the ones to make the call. But others might say, well, parents shouldn't interfere with a child's body to that extent if it's avoidable. So there's a number of strong and different positions uh, that can be taken up. For me, it was a very interesting experience actually meeting this child because when Chris had described the situation, I thought initially these parents' view sounds reasonable. I can see why they think what they think. I can see what the trade-off is. And then when I saw the child and saw him running around, I did have that gut reaction. It would be terrible to amputate this child's foot. He looks fine. So what... What then is in the the toolkit, if you like, from the ethicist? Chris has got a large box of hammers and saws and screwdrivers, <laughs> but we also have a set of tools in our in our toolbox. So, you know, how did you start diving into this and trying to tease it out and come to sure. a balance? So, decision? I think that the two main tools to pull out, which we would often pull out from our ethics toolbox, are the idea of the zone of parental discretion and the concept of the child's interests and trying to promote the child's interests. Uh, and in this situation, both of these tools are helpful, but they really challenge us to think that it's not um, a very straightforward application of these tools. I mean, we might think that, you know, tools are tools and they've got a job to do. But if we think about interests, and we often talk about best interests, uh, they're still subjective. Mm. And similarly, we balance that against harms or maleficence. And they also, is a degree of subjectivity. Mm. And they will, Chris will have his view mm. and the family will have their view, and mm. maybe they can come a little closer together, but they may still stay apart. Yes, it's entirely possible for reasonable people, I think, to have uh, a different view about some of the things Chris has been talking about, uh, the importance of uh, functioning. So if this child has the, goes down the reconstructive pathway, if I've understood correctly, Chris, he would, as an adult, be able to walk, but quite not possibly not able to run. Yeah, to variable amounts, and that, that's a good point. How much could he participate in sports? Um, that is that is one component, yeah. Whereas if he has an amputation and a prosthesis, it's entirely possible that he could be up and running. Yeah, and we, we've seen that in the Paralympics, particularly fibula hemimelia. They are incredibly highly functioning. And, um, of course, prosthetic dependent, but in that prosthesis, incredibly highly functioning. Mm. So if function matters a lot in terms of a child's interest, that would be a reason to prefer 
the amputation potentially. But in that mix of what counts as promoting the child's interest, there's also things like um, body image or sense of self. And that's ultimately a subjective thing that will be up to this child and later young man to determine or, or to make for himself. And we're trying to predict it. That's really hard to do. So we're thinking that in some ways the person we're responsible to becomes the child as uh, an adolescent or a young man and that they're happy with the decision that was made for them. I think that's a really important point, John, that uh, both the surgeon and the parents are in the position of making a decision for somebody else. And a decision needs to be made because this little boy less than two years old can't make a decision for himself. Um, A decision to do nothing is still a decision, so it can't be avoided. Um, But both parties are predicting And so the one who really matters is that child and later adult that the child will become. I might just ask Chris, you must have done amputations in other situations in young children. How do they integrate that into their personalities? Totally, uh, fantastically, John. In fact, recently I saw a child where we did a minor an operation on their stump. This is a teenage girl, just a small operation on their stump that meant they couldn't wear their prosthesis for a few weeks and they were almost having a grief response to a body part loss because the prosthesis is their body part. And it was so interesting to see how she was missing her leg. So when when we talked about this with other groups... um, you know, people have sort of taken a middle ground. So, well, you don't have to decide now. You could do the procedures and embark on reconstruction. And if you're not getting the functional or the appearance that you want, well, then do the amputation then. Or embark on it and when the child's old enough, let them make the decision. Is that a decision or a non-decision, Chris? It is a, it is a decision and we frequently... In the case of the parents where we've suggested an amputation and they're really anti for whatever reason, then we do go down limb reconstruction. Some of those children will then make their own decision to have the amputation. I think one of the challenges is that is that the parents somewhere maybe need to feel validated in their decision making. So it works brilliantly where the doctor and the patient, parents are in line with each other because the parents validate the doctor, the doctor validates the parents' decision. We all go into it together, hand in hand, feeling, hey, we're doing a really good thing today. Um, the, the challenge is when the two, when you don't feel validated, so you still feel that this is the right thing to do, but you, you feel unsupported in it, you're on your own, and that's not such a good place to feel. Lynn, you uh, talked about the zone of parental discretion. So do you want to just briefly explain to listeners what that is and whether you feel this case sits in the zone? Mm. So the idea of the zone of parental discretion is that it describes both an ethically and legally protected space where parents can legitimately make a decision for their child, which others might think is suboptimal in some way. So it's not the parent's obligation to make the perfect decision for their child in the eyes of others, but essentially to make a good enough decision, a decision that doesn't actually cause the child harm, even if it doesn't absolutely maximally promote the child's interests. So if we use that idea in this context, it seems to me quite clearly that a decision for amputation or a decision for reconstructive surgery would in fact fall within the zone of parental discretion. And 
I think one of the main reasons I say that is because of the complexity and subjectivity in trying to work out what would actually be in this child's best interests. And we've got to think about the child as a child during his childhood, but also during his adulthood. So there's an awfully long time frame to be thinking about. And there's really almost incommensurable things like function, appearance, body image, self-esteem, sense of bodily integrity, all of those things are in the mix. And it's really hard to compare them and to weigh them against each other. So in some ways, it seems to me this is the classic example of the type of decision that's within the zone of parental discretion. Chris, uh, I'm sure as an orthopaedic surgeon, you have to make some big calls. You're perhaps chosen the specialty because of your ability to make decisions and make the right one. How does this sit with you, the zone of parental discretion, and you're letting somebody else make the decision? It's um, It wasn't a concept I'd really come across till I spoke to Lynn. And um, I suppose in orthopaedics, we are interested, we look at outliers. So is this is this come across to us as weird or strange that normally when we sit down with the parents, they would understand, they would get it that we want to keep the leg. And so when you see someone who isn't like that, you start thinking, well, are these parents, if they're outliers, why? And can we trust their ability to make that decision? But then they're the child's parents. Um, In orthopaedics, I suppose we see ourselves a little bit as the protector of the child as well. But maybe not in a pure way because we're still we're used to getting our way. So we believe our way is the way that protects the child, but that's not necessarily right. And so when you see this conflict, it challenges both of those things. Are these parents, are they really in touch with reality or is the doctor in touch with reality? That's what that challenges you in. So it's, it's interesting you're embarking on patriarchy uh, there, but I'm glad you came back <laughs> yes. to thinking about maybe the doctor's the wrong, the person with the wrong, uh, with the wrong yeah. opinion uh, there. Um, one of the concepts a chap called Joel Feinberg discussed was a sense of an open future. Mm. And, and maybe that's where that middle ground of not doing anything too definitive now mm. comes in. Is that a concept, Lynn, that you think could be helpful mm. in this case? So the idea of a child's right to an open future is a very powerful idea. And I think it's often a very important idea that helps you make a decision. So the idea is that the role of parents and in fact anybody who's taking care of a child is to leave the child's future open to be whatever the child wants it to be as far as possible. And that sounds like a fantastic idea and insofar as that's possible to achieve, it's very worthwhile to achieve. The difficulty is that in many situations, and this is one of them, making a decision that tries to keep open the future is not so easy to do because, for example, um, a decision to wait to see what the child wants and you might be waiting quite a long time has its own consequences. So that child's going to still have those years of waiting to see whatever waiting to see would look like. And often it's the case that as you wait, you might even be closing off avenues that you could have taken. It's not always so easy to go to go back to the starting point, so to speak, Chris, you might want to say a little bit more about what would be the implications of waiting and doing yeah, nothing. The, is that even possible? It is in, the challenge, I suppose, in in waiting is that if you 
look back historically before we had the availability of medicine that we have now and you look to countries that don't have our availability, you do see people with these conditions that are getting on with life. Uh, they found a way to walk. I mean, some fibula hemimelias are so short that that would be a real struggle, but others are not short enough and to, to, to make it a big issue for walking. But then you've got to bring that into the modern day and say, this is what we expect right now. In, in our, where we're at with our technology, where we're at with our lives, this is what we expect. So if we've had a discussion and these options are on the table, why can't I have that option? If I've, from the parliamentary's point of view, if I've looked into it, if I've thought about it, and I've, this is you know, our child that we have a responsibility for, why can we not make that decision now? Why do we need to put off the decision? Because there are negative aspects to the child, you know, starting uh, childcare and, and then all that. And then it wasn't just about that, but it was about dad was going to work interstate, mum would be with the child on her own. It was all these difficult, all complexities feeding in to the situation. So to try and separate it into one pure decision, like the child's childhood, it's about more than the child. It was about the, the, the parents actually said to me, it's about the family's um, future. They said it's not just about the child, it's about our family and how we relate and how we face life together as a family unit. And that was another very interesting thing. And all credit to the, to the parents, they were very switched on about these things. They just presented uh, concepts that we don't normally have to face. Lynn, are you comfortable that Chris is describing something that we often trumpet here at Royal Children's is family-centred care, but sometimes the child's left behind while the needs of the parents are met. Mm. So family-centred care sounds fantastic, and often is, but it has some hidden complications. What I heard Chris describing there was quite, I think, a sophisticated understanding of what family-centred care is about, which is that there is a child, there are parents, there are possibly other siblings, together they form a family. So for the child who's under your care, Chris, that child's interests matter, and you might even say that's the primary thing that matters. But we know that um, the extent to which that child's life will go well depends a lot on the parents. So the family are in it together in that sense. These parents will have to bring up this child, make help him make what his life is going to be. If they're committed to an amputation pathway and they want to make that good life for him, that, that's going to make a big difference to his life. If they were committed to the um, reconstructive pathway and wanted to make that good life for him, that would also make a difference. It does seem a problem to put parents on a pathway that they're not committed to when it's going to be them who has to make this a good life for the child, particularly when they're young. I think that's a, a really in, important uh, point, Lynn. Chris, you were hinting, though, at, at something in that, in amongst the family said to care about the childhood, because... A lot of people would think, well, childhoods it's about going to school, it's about preparing yourself for your, for your adult life. And so you might embark on reconstruction to get yourself ready for your adult life. But what about the childhood? So does that influence yeah, it's you? It's a good point, John, because we are um, doing something by doing surgery, say we're doing reconstruction, with a view to their future life. But at the same time, life is about the now. Each one of us lives in the now, don't we? And so you, by doing stuff, you rob some of that now for the child when you put the child in plaster or put them in a frame or put them in hospital. You take some of that now when they don't go to, um, to school or don't interact or, or, or add to that the stress you add to the family. That robs them of some of their now. And so 
they, they will lose some childhood they will never get back again. So as surgeons, and I expect all doctors, but particularly surgeons, we're very keen, particularly with um, conditions that require repeated surgeries, to try and minimise our robbing, what we perceive as robbing their childhood, because they will not ever get it again. It's really refreshing to hear at uh, the Children's Hospital, Chris. Chris, um, we're going to get near the end, so there a few questions. Uh, firstly, what happened? What was decided? Well, we, we have a weekly um, case conference meeting in our department where all our team would get together and we often discuss our difficult cases. So we invited Lynn and her team to come along and explore some of these areas. And for me, that was really important because it allowed me to bring this dilemma that I had, that I was struggling with, with into my, the group of my colleagues and let them share it. And, and then they could either stand with me or they could say, Chris, no, don't do this. We'll stand with you either way. But they, that, that was really useful for me because at the end of the day, um, I am the one that carries out the amputation. So that that's... Um, Another thing that as a, as a surgeon, you, you, you want to come to work knowing that you, you want to drive into work knowing that you're about to do something really great, something you're really going to be pleased with and look back as I've just done a great thing. And so the last thing you want is any sense of I might be doing the wrong thing. So that we brought the family to the, the case conference and we had a, a really good session. And from that, I felt, yes, we can proceed and do the amputation. We did the amputation. The child is highly functional. The family are happy with their decision. They've stayed happy with their decision. And as one would expect, he's just tearing around with his prosthetic leg. So, so, so far, and hopefully for good, it seems uh, a happy ending. Chris, how did you feel, though, on the day doing the surgery, knowing that you're aligned with good sense with the parents' wishes supported by colleagues and ethics. Did you feel happy going into theatre that day? I did, John. Um, I, I think I still had this a uh, slight um, struggle, a battle going on inside about the you know the, the two sides of the argument. But but in many ways that argument had already been had. It had already been decided, and so it, it's a very it's a very different situation than if I'd have gone in facing the battle in the spur of the moment, that I didn't have to face it in the spur of the moment. And has it helped you do more amputations in this condition? I haven't um, done been, been in this situation again, but I have done amputations since then. And I think you still, the challenge is that we, as surgeons, we see ourselves as reconstructors of people who take something that's not good and make it better, particularly in orthopaedics, because we fix broken stuff. That's what we do. We make broken stuff good, or the body actually makes it good, but we help the body make it good. And so to try and understand that concept that by doing something that physically seems destructive, I'm being constructive. That's that's the thing, and I'm I'm understanding that. I mean, in some areas we do it naturally without even thinking about it, but in some of these other areas, it, it challenges that that whole uh, understanding of why we do what we do and, and why we're doing it. Well, it sounds like we've got a great outcome, a functional outcome for the child. Parents are happy. Orthopedic team is happy, and there's been a lot of important ethical. Ref- Reflection. I think that's a very positive note uh, to end on. So thank you, Chris, and thank you, Lynn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more at the Royal Children's Hospital website. Just go to rch.org.au forward slash 
podcasts or find us on your podcast app. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, visit us at rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. And there you'll find lots of resources about children's bioethics. We'd love to hear what you thought about this podcast, so please leave us a review. Essential Ethics, be inspired. <laughs>